Gospels of Luke and Matthew. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 56. It can be found on page 1606 of the Pew Bible. And Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, found on page 1550. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus has commanded the evil spirit to come out of that man. Many times he has seized him, and though he was chained, hand and foot, and kept on under guard, he has broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the men, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those standing the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from, from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the garrisons asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, 
came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come into his house because his only daughter, a girl of 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Lord our God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that as we now reflect together on your word, you will lodge these words deep in our hearts and speak to us. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We continue with the, our anniversary series from the Gospel according to Luke on being disciples of the Spirit-filled Messiah. We kind of took a break in case you all haven't noticed for Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Easter Sunday. Uh, let me do a quick recap. In January, we looked at how God prepared His people for the coming of the Messiah. And then over February and March, we reflected on the way of discipleship 
the way of love and grace, of wisdom and discernment and of forgiveness. And then early April, we began to look at how interactions with Jesus, encounters with Jesus and his word changes lives. We started with looking at the different seasons of our souls and what God's word does to uh, our hearts, our lives, uh, if we receive it or if we don't receive it with the parable of the sower. And so today we come to the latter half of chapter 8 and we have three stories of Jesus exercising his authority over the forces of nature, over demons, over sickness and even death. The last two kind of being embedded together. Jesus exercises his authority not just so that he could demonstrate power, but he does it in compassionate response to those in need and those who come to him. And the lives of these people are touched in some way, and we can be sure they will never be the same again. In these encounters, it seems to me that three questions face the people and us when we encounter Jesus as well. Who is this? Or who is this man? Will I trust him? And how will I respond to what has come out of the last two questions? The first story of Jesus stilling the storm is a familiar one to many of us. By the time they were in that boat and crossing the Sea of Galilee to the other side, the disciples had been with Jesus for some time. They had seen him preached, preach, they have seen him teach the crowds, they had seen him cast out demons from those who were possessed, and they had witnessed Jesus healing people of paralysis, of blindness, of leprosy, and the like. So they would have begun to form an idea of who Jesus is. And in all uh, instances, it would point to Messiah, the Anointed One. And so there they were caught in the storm. And it seemed like some of them were seasoned fishermen. They would have faced storms, but it seemed like this storm was in particular a terribly strong one that they have never quite encountered before. And so they panicked and they called their master and lord, their teacher who was sitting or who was sleeping in the boat, like a baby maybe. And then, as we know, Jesus gets up looks at them, looks at the storm, rebukes the storm. And incidentally, that word rebuke is also the same word that is used when the gospel writers describe Jesus rebuking the demons. And uh, in the other chapters, we are told what Jesus says, be still. And that word still is also the same word that Jesus uses to shut the demons up, be silent. 
And so when the storm comes, it is something the disciples totally never expected. I'm not sure what they expected Jesus to do, but from their response, a rebuke and a command to the wind and the water, and for them to obey seems to be furthest from their mind. This was the first time they had seen Jesus having authority over the forces of nature. So they were stunned and amazed, and the first question out of their lips was, who is this? Who is this that the winds and the water and the storm obey him? And this is a question every human being will be confronted with and has to answer. Who is this? And Luke, in telling these stories and the next tree, begins to kind of give us a clue, give his readers a clue, leading up to the question that Jesus would ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And who was this Jesus in the disciples' mind? If we recall what we looked at on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people were so caught up with that desire to be freed from the Roman Empire that they could only see Jesus as a political messiah, someone who would overturn the government of Rome and bring freedom to them. Even the disciples saw Jesus in that light. And if you remember James and John, uh, Matthew says they sent their mother quite polite about the disciples. In uh, Mark, they themselves went to Jesus and asked to sit on his left and right when he comes into his kingdom in glory. Political power, that was what they were focused on. But that was not what Jesus had come to do. The people, in looking at Jesus, had come to their own conclusion and had kind of cast Jesus into what they wanted him to be. No wonder they were so disappointed when Jesus died on the cross. But if you remember, if we fast forward in Luke to chapter 24, and Jesus encounters two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he asks them, why are you looking so sad? What are you talking about? And they say, you know, we thought, this Jesus of Nazareth, he would be the one to save us. In other words, to establish the kingdom of God in Palestine, this geographical region, and throughout the Roman rulers. Jesus then explains things to them, and this is what he says, or oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. And then for the next, the two verses down, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. The thing is this, when they read the scriptures, yes, they knew things that the scriptures said about the Messiah, but they didn't take it all in. They homed in on the victory 
uh, passages, most likely the one where you had the Son of Man coming in Daniel chapter 7, and God gives him uh, authority over the nations. They remembered that. They remembered uh, God's promise to David, you will never fail to have a descendant sit upon the throne, and so on and so forth. And so in their minds, it was a picture of a victorious saviour. They had forgotten that all the scriptures included texts like Isaiah 52 and 53, which spoke of the Lord's servant who would suffer before being victorious. And so when we read scripture, we cannot read scripture on its own. Scripture interprets scripture and we need to have the big picture before us when we read scripture and when we want to interpret texts and passages. The disciples would in time come to answer the question, who is this or who is this man? As they experienced Jesus' presence with them after the resurrection and as the church was born and as they took the gospel out to the ends of the earth. We find them preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to all people. They were getting it right by then because Jesus had shown them all the scriptures and they uh, were able to grasp, or at least they were beginning to grasp and that understanding of who Jesus was grew. And so they preached the good news. They declared Jesus to be God's anointed. And if you remember, they did that before the Jewish council. Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one anointed by God to take authority and reign, not just over Israel, not politically, but over all of the universe, including the spiritual realm. Jesus is the Messiah indeed, anointed by God, not to save Israel simply from the power of Rome, but to save all people from the power of sin. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? As we encounter Jesus, as we hear the news and the word about Jesus, you and I will have to come to a point in time where we must answer this question for ourselves. But answering this question of who Jesus is is not meant to be an intellectual exercise. Knowing who Jesus is must move from the head to the heart. Very easy for us to take the Bible, to take the text, to read it, to analyze it, to do word studies, to look at sentence structure, to look at grammar. Some of us have very thick study Bibles, huh? and we like to read the footnotes. I know I do. We like to read books about what people say about Jesus. And we come to some kind of conclusion, maybe, maybe not. But at the end of the day, the answer to the question of who Jesus is must bring us to 
a decision to believe in Jesus or to reject him. And the thing is, we can mentally assent to believing in Jesus, but in our lives and the way we live, we can reject him. You know, there's a saying, some people uh, have got the Father in heaven, but from Monday to Saturday, they live like orphans. That is rejecting Jesus in our daily lives. When the Bible talks about belief, it is not simply mental agreement that leaves our lives untouched. The word for belief or for of faith in the Bible means to trust or to have confidence in God, in Jesus Christ. John Ortberg, in his book, Who Is This Man?, points out that, you know, when we come back to that story of the Gerasene demoniac, that talks about, uh, that helps us to see that the disciples had to make a decision. Who is this man? Are we going to trust him or not? We can very well say, well, they were in the boat with him, no escape. But they were the fishermen. They were in control of the boat. And so when Jesus says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake, they can very well say, no, let's turn back. Because the implication of going to the other side it's not just geographical. The other side of the lake, Decapolis, was pagan country. Pagan temples, pagan practices, dark, oppressive, evil. And the fact that swine were there means not kosher, tak halal. It was the centre also of Roman power in that region. And that was a place a Jew would want to avoid because it was everything that they were not and everything that they were not to do. But John Ortberg says it was as if Jesus didn't know this was the other side. Jesus acted as if every side belonged to him. All the peoples of the earth would now be blessed through him. That's how Jesus behaved. Even the other side, even the pagan side of the lake. And so the disciples had to grit their teeth and go with Jesus on this one and trust him. And it didn't help that stepping out from the boat, there was this screaming, yelling thing coming at them at high speed. And it must have just simply confirmed what they had known all along, that this other side was bad. And yet Jesus was unfazed. He stood there. He looked at that man coming to him. And he spoke with him. He reached out to that man. And interestingly enough, the demons that were in that man recognized who Jesus is. And so the disciples had to trust Jesus on this one. 
They had to trust that Jesus knew what he was doing and they saw God's mighty work in that man when Jesus delivered him. That man himself ended up trusting Jesus, having experienced the healing and deliverance. Unfortunately, the people in that region did not. They saw Jesus' authority and they saw Jesus' power, but Jesus was not one of them. And so they did not trust him to use his power for their good. They were afraid and they pressed Jesus to leave. Please go away. We don't want you here. Even when there was evidence that Jesus had delivered one of their own. And so Jesus left. Jesus doesn't force his way through. God doesn't force his way through with people. He waits. And so Jesus and his disciples went back to the other side and found Jairus coming to him. Jairus placed his trust in Jesus when he came to plead with Jesus to heal his dying daughter. The woman with a hemorrhage did the same when she reached out and touched the edge of Jesus' cloak. They demonstrated that trust in their actions, in coming to Jesus, in reaching out to Jesus. Jairus, though, had to go one step further to trust when all hope seemed to be gone. Imagine Jairus leading Jesus to his home, pressing through to the crowd. You know how it is when you are late for an, a meeting and you're caught in a jam? For us, we drive. Lah. In those days, they walked. And so there was this crowd. You're trying to get to uh, the house on time so that Jesus could pray and heal the daughter. And the crowds were all around them, pressing, jostling and all that. And then suddenly, in the midst of it all, Jesus doesn't push forward, but he stops. Dead stop in the middle of the crowd. Who touched me? For Peter and the disciples, it, it was kind of like no-brainer. Jesus, really? Like, the whole crowd is pressing around you. Someone must be touching you at every point in time as long as you're in this crowd. But Jesus knew it was a different kind of touch. A touch that reached out in faith. And in response to that faith, God sent the power through Jesus and healed that woman. He said, no, no, it's a different kind of touch because power went out from me. Eugene Peterson writes, power discharged from me. And the woman who had reached out to touch Jesus had to take one more step in faith to admit what she has done, what she had done. And in doing so, she had her faith, she had her trust affirmed by Jesus himself. And not only that, she not only received physical healing, Jesus sent her away in peace. The peace of Jesus was given to her. 
But in the meantime, imagine Jairus standing there, move, shifting maybe from one foot to another, being really impatient. He was on edge. He wanted Jesus to get to his house now. But then he had to wait. At the same time, perhaps the fact that the woman was healed gave him courage to say, Jesus can do it. Strengthen his trust. But at that moment, news came. Bad news. Devastating news. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Death is always so final in human eyes. You know, while the girl was at death, uh, was, was ill, she still had life even if she was near death's door and Jesus could heal her. But death, that's it. They had lost her. So they thought, let Jesus go, lah. don't bother him anymore. There's nothing more he could do, they thought. But Jesus was not about to let go. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Just trust me. And she will be healed. And Jairus had a choice there and then to trust Jesus and continue that journey to back to his home or to tell Jesus, no, no use anymore. She's dead. Sorry to have bothered you and walk away and maybe become bitter about it. Jairus chose to trust Jesus and continued that journey to his home. And the result was that he received his daughter back, alive. What does it mean for you and for me to trust God, to trust Jesus? When we put our trust in someone it must be because we have experienced or come to know that the person is trustworthy, isn't it? Jairus and the woman trusted because they, or gave that initial trust because they must have heard of the things that Jesus had done in healing and in delivering people. Perhaps they had been in the crowd, part of the crowd when Jesus had done these things. But for us, we've not quite seen Jesus in action. Maybe some of us have at prayer meetings and so on. But we have something that speaks to us so obviously that God is trustworthy. James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, and I think I've shared this before, writes about how Jesus himself could place his trust in God as he struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. And we looked a little bit at that on Monday, Thursday, and on Good Friday. In that book, Smith quotes Thomas Smale uh, from his book, The Forgotten Father. And this is what he says. The father that Jesus addresses in the garden is the one he has known all his life and found to be bountiful in his provision reliable in his promises and utterly faithful in his love. 
He can obey the will that sends him to the cross with hope and expectation because it is still the will of Abba whose love has been so proved that it can now be trusted so fully by being obeyed so completely. This is not legal obedience driven by commandment, but trusting response to known love. Trusting response to known love. Um, Vanessa, it was the previous slide. Yeah. Because Jesus had experienced in every way deeply God's love for him. Perhaps some of us may not have, and we ask ourselves, how can we trust God? On Monday, Thursday, we looked at how Jesus, having gone through suffering, now enters or is able to enter our suffering to be with us. And then we looked at how Jesus took on our sins, not just paying the penalty for sins, but as Paul says, was made sin for us. Jesus hung on that cross and paid that price for sin as if he had committed every one of those sins that human beings committed as if he had committed it himself. And Paul says, he was made sin for us, for our sakes, he who knew no sin. And in Romans, he writes, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. While we were still sinners, God gave his son for us to die on the cross. The cross is the very obvious demonstration of God's love for us. No one would die for an evil person. No one would die for a bad person. No one would die for someone hostile to him or her. But those were the things we were to God when Jesus died on the cross. And that is how we know that Jesus can be trusted. Demonstrating his love, God's love for us, giving his life for our sakes, every one of us, while we were still hostile, some of us may be indifferent towards him. Now, if we have come to a conclusion about who Jesus is, if we have decided that he can be trusted and that we will trust him, then our lives have to show it. Our lives need to respond in accordance to that. We move from head, understanding who Jesus is, to heart, trusting him, to hands. Some of us may have heard this anecdote before. There was a terrible storm in a town. And so the local officials sent out an emergency warning that the riverbanks would soon overflow and flood nearby homes. And so they ordered everybody to evacuate. A faithful Christian man heard the warning and decided to stay, saying to himself, I will trust God 
and if I am in danger, then God will send a divine miracle to save me. Very favoured kind of thing. Huh? The neighbours came from by his house and said to him, Hey, we're leaving and there's room for you in the car. Please come with us. But the man said, I have faith God will save me. You go ahead. And so, as the man stood on the porch waiting, the water rose. And the man um, kind of rose up a little bit and a man on a canoe came by and said, Hey, ha Come in, the waters are rising, let's go. And he said again, no thanks, God will save me. The flood waters rose higher and came into his living room and he had to go on to the second floor. A police motorboat came by and called him, saw him in the window and said, come on, we'll save you. But the man said, no, no, God will save me, use your boat, go save some other people. And the floodwaters continued to rise and he had to climb up on his roof. And a helicopter came along and saw him, let down a rope ladder and said, come, we'll pull you up. But the man still refused, folded his arms and said, no, thank you, God will save me. Shortly after that, the house broke up, the floodwaters swept the man away and he drowned. He had a complaint with God in heaven he stood there. I put all of my trust in you, my faith in you. You didn't come and save me. Why? And God said, son, I sent you a warning. I sent you a car. I sent you a canoe. I sent you a motorboat. I sent you a helicopter. What more do you want? Trusting God doesn't mean deciding how God will answer your prayer. That's not trust. That's hopeful thinking. You know, many times I realise we say, we'll just pray and trust God. But many times if we look very carefully at what we're saying, it can be wishful thinking. We want God to act in a certain way, in the way we prayed. And so when God does not answer, we say God has not answered prayer. You know, I was talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with a friend. And so I uh, said, you know, uh, as, as I was reflecting on that, it seemed that that was the prayer that God did not answer for Jesus. And she looked at me and said, Really? God did not answer it in the way Jesus prayed. If it be possible, remove this cup from me. But there was an answer, and it was no. When we say we trust God like Jesus trusted God, it means being attentive to God. It means knowing God's heart and being open to how God will answer our prayers, and more often than not, God doesn't answer our prayers exactly the way we pray them because our knowledge is so limited. By trusting, it means to be attentive so that we can see God at work. And God is at work even in the mundane, ordinary things of our daily lives. The neighbor's car, 
the canoe, the boat, the helicopter, so ordinary. But they were the things that God was using to save this guy. The man expected something spectacular, and maybe we do too. Maybe we've heard too many testimonies about spectacular things happening. But more often than not, God works in the small, ordinary things and in the ordinary ways of our lives. And we need to keep our eyes open. The man who was delivered from the demons wanted to follow Jesus. If that was how he felt he could work out his trust and by trusting Jesus, he would follow him. He had experienced Jesus at work. He had experienced Jesus' compassion for him. You know, when you think about it, following Jesus would have enhanced Jesus' reputation. Nowadays, when we have evangelists coming, we have them step up onto the... We have people who have experienced healing and all that step up and testify to healing. I'm not putting that down, but I'm just saying, you know, this man could have gone and he could have testified to the crowds, you know, Jesus delivered me. You've got to trust him because he can do it for you. But Jesus' instructions to this guy was, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Our trust in God works itself out in our homes, where we are, in our workplaces, with our friends. If we look at the similar story, or the same story that is told by Mark, Mark has the story as well in Mark chapter 5, and then we move on to Mark chapter 7, the end of Mark chapter 7 and chapter 8, we find that Jesus goes back to this region. And what does he find there? A great crowd. And he ends up feeding 4,000 of their people. How different from that first visit when the people said, please go away, we don't want you here. Crowds now were bringing people to him. Crowds were bringing their sick to him uh, to be prayed for, to be healed that man and his witness of what God had done for him in Jesus Christ changed that region. Sometimes we ask, can one man make a difference? And I would say yes, when we do it trusting God. But obedience comes in different forms. For this man, Jesus' instructions to him was, go tell the people what God has done for you. But when you come to Jairus and uh, his girl received back from the dead, Jesus' instructions to him and the wife were, do not tell anyone. Different circumstances, different instructions. And so Jesus comes to each of us and calls us to obedience, to trusting him and to obedience in different ways. When we say we trust Jesus, what would obedience look like for us, for you, for me? This is the season of Easter. Christ is risen to, in that meeting with the disciples. We come back again 
to this idea of Jesus' authority. All authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. And because of that, his command to us is to go make disciples of all nations, including the ones in your neighbourhood, by the way. Sometimes we read that and we dream of going overseas, ah? Africa, China, Cambodia. Some people felt they're called to Australia, England, first world countries. But making disciples begins in our homes, first with our children, then with our family members, with our neighbours even. Baptizing them and commanding them to obey everything that he has commanded us. And that means we need to learn to live in the ways of God's kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount gives us the reality of life in God's kingdom. If you want to know what it's like, read those three chapters, Matthew chapter 5 to 7. Love God with all our being and love neighbour as we would love ourselves. And the only way we would be able to do this is to allow the Holy Spirit into our lives, to be attentive to the Holy Spirit as He leads us day by day. And this is where, at the risk of sounding like I'm nagging, making time to spend with Jesus Daily matters. 15 minutes, 20 minutes, some of us are on the run with so many responsibilities on our plates. If you have not started, start with five minutes just sitting very quietly like we do at the beginning of our worship. Staying quiet, recognizing that God is present and then being attentive to how God would speak to us, whether it be through Scripture, if we read, or through our prayers. So the three questions that confront us as we look at this text again is, who is Jesus? Who do we say Jesus is? Will I trust him? Will you trust him? How will we respond? So I will leave you with these three questions to ponder over this Easter season. Let us pray.